I'm excited about some of the colleges that are doing well and the high schools are doing well. But what really got me excited is what took place Friday evening in a big walnut during the, uh, actually following the big walnut game with Westville North and big walnut high school. And that was when the two teams, members from both teams, got in the middle of the football field. Let me have it, guys. And knelt down, and our number two... <laughs> Nikki Pentella is leading them in prayer, both teams. This may happen every week with all teams. I do not know. But I saw this. I was so inspired because I knew what I was speaking on today that today I have invited all of our teenagers from Big Walnut, North, South, Delaware, Centerburg, all over that normally are in their own service over here to join us in our service today. Janelle, will you make our young people feel very welcome for being in here with us today? And the reason I'm so very excited about that is because after following our series on Jonah, it dawned on me, people ask me all the time, you know, Frank, was there ever another revival like that? Well, there have been many revivals. Unfortunately, some of them have gone unreported or underreported. But how we desire to see the Lord move again in a way of holiness and spiritual revival and renewal in our country. We live in a time where every day you pick up the newspaper and you wonder, where is God in the middle of all of this? How can our nation be slipping down the slope so fast? It's not even a slippery slope. It's an abyss. It seems like it's a cliff that we're jumping over. And yet in the midst of all of that, I want you to know that there's still God on the throne. We still have a Lord that's a master controller of every situation that takes place. And I thought, you know, we should just take a moment and reflect. I've done this in the past. I'd like to reshare it with you again. The importance of trusting God for revival as we go through things. Uh, I think it's so important that we understand that stranger things have happened, perhaps in our minds, than even the Nineveh revival, where everyone from the king down to the peasants all put on sackcloth and ashes and repented and got right with God. And God spared that city, that great city in Assyria, for an additional 100 years. You say, well, it didn't last. Well, guys, neither does a bath, but you smell better after you've had one. And today, I want to speak to us on the great movements of God that's happened in our country in the last hundred years. In fact, stranger things have happened. Some of you are old enough to remember a great movement because, young people, most revival movements in the history of the world since Jesus Christ have begun with young people. Rarely has it started with older people moving down. There's something about the energy, the fire, the aspiration, the desire to believe God for great things. And unfortunately for us, as we get older, sometimes we get comfortable with things just the way they were and the way that they are. Some of you who are older, though, may remember the revival that broke out in a chapel service in a little Christian college in Wilmore, Kentucky, called Asbury College in 1970. It was such a movement of God in that chapel service that they ended up canceling classes for six days. You want to get out of class at work? Let's just have at school. Let's have a revival. And the chapel service continued to the students left and went out in neighboring states. And in 16 states in six weeks, thousands of people came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Some of you may still be familiar with that revival under a different name. It's called Ichthus Revival. And every April, there's a music festival in Wilmore outside of Lexington to celebrate that great movement of God that happens. 
There was a Christian high school over in Indiana a few years ago that had an outbreak of revival in the morning chapel service. Students were making confession of sin, and a revival broke out that was so spontaneous and so genuine that it flowed out of the building into the community, into churches, and into homes, and is still talked about today. You and I are always and will be in a constant need for revival. If you're a Christian, say amen. amen. Well, you need to know, and I want to remind you this morning, and I've asked God to help me stir up your spiritual passion and soul with this, that you should always be on guard, always be willing to grow, and always wanting the Lord to show you more light on this path. That's why the Bible says if we walk in the light as he is in the light, if we continually move closer to him, we can grow. And the reason we need to be on guard is because you have three great enemies, the Bible says, that will always attack a Christian. Are you looking at me, Christian? It will be the world, your flesh, and the devil. The world will always have something they'll throw at the Christian. Your flesh innately has a desire to satisfy only your flesh. Your flesh could care less about your spiritual walk with Jesus Christ. And then you need to know that we have an enemy called Satan. And the Bible says that the devil is like a roaring lion seeking him whom he may devour. And that is not just unbelievers, that is believers. How many times have you heard testimonies of Christians who you fellowshiped with, prayed with, worshipped with, walked with, maybe worked with, and then they fall away from the things of God? They backslide. Someone said, Frank, how do I know if I'm backslidden? If you are any farther away from God today than you have ever been, by definition, that is a state of being backslidden. There are some great verses regarding revival. The one text that I want you to see this morning, I want you to turn in your Bible with me and hold it. It's the only verse you're going to see. I, you'll see there are no notes for you in your bulletin today because for once, I'd just like you to listen to me. I know it's hard to look at me, but I want you to listen to me. And I want to share with you from my heart what I believe God's passion is for each one of us for revival. In fact, the psalmist David said in Psalm 85, 6, Lord, won't you revive us again so that your people can rejoice in you? When do you rejoice the most in the Lord? When you feel like a sack of sin on a popsicle stick? Or when you're just victorious knowing that it is well with my soul and I love the Lord Jesus Christ? And the psalmist says when we get that part right, we can rejoice in the Lord. But I love what the psalmist David said in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. It's on the screen. He said, search me, O God. In fact, twice in that chapter, he says, search me, O God. Have any of you ever gone, traveled, and have to go through the TSA at the airports or wherever? Man, they search you. They want to see the cavities in your teeth, the cavities in your body. They, they, they search you. And I thought about that when I was reading this verse where he says, search me, O Lord, look everywhere. Don't just see me on Sunday morning when my face is real pretty and my clothes are real pressed nice. But Lord, search me in my living room, in my bedroom. Come in my kitchen. Come in my man cave. Come in my girl barn. Lord, just wherever I'm at, however I live, seven days a week, you're welcome, God, to search me. And I want you to know my heart, God. I want to speak to you truthfully. Test me. Wow. Test me, Lord. That doesn't mean give me a test, see if I get an A on it. But try me, Lord, and see what my anxious thoughts are. See, Lord, is there anything offensive in me? And, Lord, you lead me in the way everlasting. Leads us to James 5.16. Notice on the screen. James says, therefore, confess your sins. Pray for each other so that you may be healed. 
And I love what he says. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And it may be my favorite verse as a Christian. My favorite non-Christian verse is John 3.16. For God so loved the world. But 1 John 1.9 is a verse written to believers. If we, we are we, y'all. <laughs> if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And I want to tell you, when we get to the point that we let he do what he wants to do in our lives, then we can see revival begin. And I want to, if you'll lend me your ear, tell you the story of a great revival, retell some of you the story of a great revival and spiritual awakening that hit this country at the turn and the beginning of the 20th century that had its roots in great Britain in, in the country of Wales and spread to four continents and the United States that ended up just in the United States alone in a space of a few years seeing over two million people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and you may not be aware of it completely because history has not been faithful in telling it correctly but at the beginning of the 20th century America experienced one of the greatest revivals it has ever known it all started, though, over in Wales with one great revival that was held there. It started in an unlikely place, a place called New Keys, Wales, in a local church with a pastor by the name of Jenkins. And Joseph Jenkins was a man who believed in the power of the Holy Spirit. I hope you believe in the power of the Holy Spirit this morning. He believed in the new birth. He believed in the infilling of the Holy Spirit of God. But his church was not on fire. He would probably describe it more as a Laodicean church, lukewarm, liking to show up on Sunday mornings, but not living out beyond the four walls what they believed. They had almost taken a fortress mentality because in those days there was no mall, young people, to go to. Believe it or not, the church was the center of social life for the people of the beginning of the 20th century. They had tennis courts at the church. That's not a bad idea. I was at a church in Texas uh, not long ago. They had a bowling alley in the church. I, you watch, we're going to get one. <laughs> they had a bowling alley in that church. And, and, and the young people would come to that church and they would play tennis and they would have fellowship. And, 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 but the pastor was so burdened because he loved his young people. He loved his teenagers and he didn't see people responding to Christ. As I've said, I'm convinced if you read historically, most of the revivals that have started since the time of Christ have centered around young people. They were active. They came there for sports and activities, and they were wholesome, but they were not dynamic. And the adults were really not that dynamic spiritually. They were going through the motions, and, and he met with his young people one evening, and he asked them this question. Guys, I just want to know, I'm glad you come to church, but what does Jesus Christ mean to you? And there was an embarrassed silence, just as there may be in this great audience if I were to ask the same question. And in a few moments, one young man said to me, he said, well, Pastor, Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. And he said, certainly he is, but that's not what I meant. What I was asking you is, what does Jesus Christ mean to you personally? And in that group, according to J. Edwin Orr, the history guy that did the Welsh revival that came to America... He said that there was a young girl about 16 years old by the name of Flory Evans who had just been a Christian for about three months. 
And she very shyly stood up and she said, Pastor, I love the Lord Jesus Christ so much. I can hardly tell you what he means to me. And she began to weep and she began to cry. And she said it in such a way that the Spirit of God gripped the hearts of every young person in that room. And there began to be testimony and weeping and sharing. And, and for some reason, revival broke out with those young people. A great prayer meeting broke out from that one Sunday school room that affected the entire country of Wales. Little is much when God is in it. The Bible says in the Old Testament, though your beginning be small, in the end it will greatly increase when the Lord is involved. And revival really broke out, and it broke out all over Wales. The young people of the church broke up in small groups and they began testifying to their family about the power of revival and what they sensed happened on one Sunday evening, just one Sunday evening in that church, and that they were experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit. And then there was this fellow by the name of Seth Joshua. He was a local evangelist. He was an itinerant. That means that he traveled from place to place. He didn't have just one church that he pastored. And he was traveling, and he heard about what had happened down at New Key Church. And he went down there to see what it was all about. And, and he traveled all over Wales preaching the gospel. And he wrote this in his diary. And these are exact quotes, incidentally. All of this stuff I've taken this week and gotten it all backed up. He said, I don't understand it. The services last until midnight. <laughs> Wishful thinking, preacher. <laughs> At midnight, I announce the benediction, and they start all over again. I can't hardly understand what is happening. It must be the work of the Holy Spirit. And this man, Seth Joshua, began traveling all over Wales, telling the story about the, the, the revival. And he went to this other city called Newcastle. And in Newcastle, there was a Bible college there, not really like we would think of Princeton or Yale or probably not even Otterbein or Mount Vernon, very primitive perhaps, but it was a Bible college that was teaching young coal miners how to become seminarians and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there, there was a young, uneducated coal miner who had dropped out of school at the age of 12 to help his father in the coal mines. Felt he had a call of God on his life. His name was Evan Roberts. I want you to see a picture of him. This is uh, historically correct. And he heard about the revival at New Keys. And he came to his roommate and he said these words. He said, I can't believe it. The altar is built. The sacrifice is ready. Now all we need to do is just ask God to let the fire fall because we are in the midst of a revival meeting. And this young man, Evan Roberts, began to follow the evangelist, Seth Joshua, around to the different villages. He followed him to another town where the evangelist was preaching morning meetings. They used to have morning revival meetings and evening revival meetings. And in the morning meeting where he was at, there were just a few old ladies who were the backbone and the prayer warriors of the church. Don't ever discount prayer warriors. And there were a handful of college students, a few seminary students, and Evan Roberts was one of them. When Seth Joshua stood up to pray, he said, Oh God, bend me, bend me. And that word bend in the Welsh language means shape me, mold me, make me. And at the end of the service, young Evan Roberts went up to the altar and he knelt down and he leaned up toward heaven and he said, Oh God, bend me, shape me. And after prayer was over, the pastor of the local church said to the evangelist, he said, I, I think that young man is a little neurotic. 
And the evangelist wrote in his diary, he said, one young man was deeply moved in the service, and his name was Evan Roberts. You will not believe how God used a 26-year-old uneducated coal miner to bring revival to four continents on the world. Evan Roberts went to his roommate, and it was his best friend. His name was Sidney Evans. And he said, Sidney, do you think that God could give us 100,000 souls in Wales? Now, what would you think of a young man who wasn't really doing that well in seminary? Academically, he was struggling. He was green at best, and he's talking about 100,000 souls. Well, my friend, I want you to know within 18 months, there were over 100,000. Some historians estimate the number was 200,000 people in the country of Wales alone that came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And here's what happened. After the prayer that night, Evan Roberts kept saying, listen, I feel like God wants me to go home. I shouldn't be sitting in this classroom. I need to go home and tell my family and share my heart and my church and tell them about the revival and preach to the other young people who I know and love. And he talked to one of his teachers and he says, I think every day God's telling me to go home and share this. And that professor said, well, certainly Satan would not say such a thing to you. It must be God. Take a few days and go. And Evan Roberts got on a train and he went to his home and his parents met him at the station and they asked the question that every parent that pays a tuition for a kid in college asks, what are you doing at home? You're supposed to be in school. You're supposed to be in seminary. And he said, I've come to preach in our church. And they said, have you talked to the preacher about it? He said, no, I haven't, but I've talked to God about it. And they said, you better go talk to the pastor about it. And he did. And he went to this pastor and he said, Pastor, God has called me to come home and preach. Now, Evan's pastor was a wise pastor. He didn't want to hurt this young man, but he didn't want to hurt his church either. And so he said, well, you come on Monday night prayer meeting and I'll let you preach. So on Monday night, Evan showed up, but the pastor did not let him preach. When it was over... He was getting ready to dismiss the service, and he said, Folks, our young friend, Evan Roberts, has come home from seminary. He feels like he has a message from God that he wants to share with you. And so those of you that would like to stay and hear this message can do so. Now, understand, in that blue-collar community at best, the coal miners would get up at 4 o'clock in the morning to go to work. The cows had to be milked. The chickens had to be fed. Things had to be done. Who would want to stay after church to hear another sermon? And the people all started leaving. They were tired. And the last thing they needed to hear was a seminary student dissect a word in the Greek or Hebrew to them. And as they were leaving, 17 people, history says, looked back and saw the kid in there all alone and decided to turn around and go back and listen to him so he wouldn't have an empty house. 17 people sat down. Evan Roberts stood up behind the pulpit and he said, I have a message from God for you. And here were the four points to make it brief of his message. He said, for us to have revival, number one, you must confess any known sin to God and put right any wrong that you've done to another person. Number two, you must put away doubtful habits. Number three, you must obey the Spirit of God promptly. And number four, you must confess your faith publicly in Jesus Christ. And by 10 o'clock that evening, all 17 of those people, as much as they could respond, had done those things. They confessed their known sins. They made things right with those in the room. They confessed doubtful habits and asked God to take them away and help them with them. And they obeyed the Spirit promptly and stood to confess publicly that the Lord Jesus Christ was the most important thing in their lives. The pastor got excited. 
he came to Evan and said, Evan, do you think you could stay till Wednesday night and preach to all the adults? Could you stay till Wednesday and preach? And maybe we can let you go down to the mission one night. And maybe the school will let you stay longer. And Evan Roberts said, I'd be happy to stay as long as possible. On Wednesday night, he began to preach. And he felt in his spirit a hindrance. You may not understand this, but speakers can sometimes feel a wall. And it's not you. Good night. But there's a spiritual wall that just feels like they're not getting through. And if you've ever tried to speak for the Lord or give a testimony for the Lord, even in your workplace, it just feels like you're hitting a brick wall. That sometimes can be demonic force working against you. And he felt like things were going. And he said, guys, we can't dismiss this prayer meeting. We need to pray. Now, he was young. He was flamboyant. He was innocent and he was ignorant. And he said, let's stay and pray all night long. And they stayed, a handful of them stayed, and they prayed. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, his mother got up to leave to go home with others followed and said, Mother, please don't leave. We need a breakthrough. She said, Evan, you're young. These people have to work all day. It's time to go home. And they left. 7 o'clock that morning, Evan went home and went to bed. And he was awakened about 10 o'clock a.m. in the parlor. He heard tears and crying and weeping. And he got up and he went down to that room. And there was his mother sitting in a rocking chair with her Bible open and tears streaming down her face. And she said, Mom, what's wrong? And she said, Evan, I'm the hindrance to the revival. I should not have left that prayer meeting. And God has showed me so. And with God's help, I'm going to be a prayer warrior for revival to happen. And the next evening, the services lasted until 2 o'clock a.m. Listen to this. Within seven days, no one reports this. The historians say that the very next Sunday, every church in Lager, from the Episcopal Church to the Salvation Army, was filled to capacity. And an unusual spiritual awakening began to happen. And it literally spread all over Wells and around the world in a very short time. For almost 18 months, every church in Wells was filled to capacity. What would happen if there would be a line of people waiting to get into Genoa like they're waiting to get into the OSU football game? What if the, some very Christian church, the Baptist church, the Methodist churches, the independent churches in Westerville and Sunbury, that every Sunday morning people so wanted to be in the house of God, you'd have to get there really early to get that seat that you easily claim today. And it says, historically says, that there were over 100,000 people saved and baptized in churches, maybe more, some say it's 200,000. One guy from over in England came to America. He lived in Cleveland, Ohio, I found out. And he was doing an interview. Let me have the 1905 March newspaper. The revival was going on strong. And it's hard for you to read it from where you're at. But if you look up in the top corner, they're asking him to describe it. And it says, one revival service lasts 19 hours. 19 hours. And he's giving his description of everything that took place, of how the Lord was changing lives and, and how music was important to the revival and people getting worked in. But so you know that we still need revival. The only reason I wanted the picture of the newspaper up there, the story is over in the fifth column halfway down. The very last column over halfway down is another story. It says, wife wielded hatchet, husband gets divorced. <laughs> And I thought, even in the midst of the revival, Satan is still at work, right? In Cleveland, Ohio. No, that would never happen in Cleveland. But uh, so, so he said, they said, they said, they asked him to explain it. They said, what's it like over there with this revival? Listen to what he says. He said, well, we start promptly at 6 o'clock a.m. and we end punctually at midnight every single day. 
He said, do you mean that everyone comes from 6 a.m. and stays till midnight? He said, oh, no. At 6 a.m., the miners come for the early shift. In the early morning, the housekeepers come. At noon, the ladies of the city come for prayer. In the afternoon, the school kids come. And at 6 p.m. till midnight, everyone comes to experience revival. We have preaching, and we have singing, and we have scripture reading, and we have testimonies, and there are times of confession. Here are some of the great things that happened in the country of Wales during that revival. David Lloyd George was a member of parliament and later became the prime minister of Britain, came into one of those cities experiencing revival for a political debate and a political speech. You know, we have campaign people going around everywhere right now for the midterm elections. And he heard about the revival that was moving, so he decided to play his political cards right, and he decided before he spoke, he would ask someone to open the debates in prayer. Well, someone stood up to pray, and they were so caught up in the spirit of revival that when he finished, someone else jumped up over here and began to pray. And over here, someone jumped up and gave a testimony, and then another. And they had a marvelous meeting, a very spiritual meeting, but those politicians never got to say a single word all night long. Would you just give glory to God and praise for such a political rally as that? And, and there was a rage of bankruptcy all over Wales. Many liquor stores went out of business. And they were bankrupted, history says. People were going to church instead of the pub. On one Saturday night, they only sold nine cents worth of liquor in one town. One New Year's Eve in a city where normally much had been bought, now no one was found inebriated. In the coal mines, this is good, I worked at the mines. In the coal mines, work slowed down almost to a stop. You see, they used horses and mules to get those coal bins in and out of the shafts all the time. And the problem was that when all these tough Welsh miners got saved, God changed their vocabulary so much that the horses didn't recognize them. <laughs> and they had to work on the interpretation, the explanation to get them to know what they were doing. Listen to this. City council after city council had meetings on what to do with the police now that they were no longer needed. Good night. We have 40 police officers here. We need them here. How would you get a whole city not needing police officers? Crime had been cut down to almost nothing. One council met and said to the police officers, Gentlemen, we don't want to fire you, but we'd like to know what you're doing. One guy said, Well, before the revival broke out, we tried to be in the right places and keep trouble from happening. But now that revival has broken out, we kind of go with the crowds. They said, What do you mean by that? He said, well, in my particular police precinct, we have four police quartets. We have a testimony band. And we have one guy who's gotten to be such a good evangelist that he's getting ready to leave us and go into the ministry full time. Somebody walked by a courtroom one day and heard some singing of old Welsh hymns in the courtroom. They looked in and listen, all the judges that are here. They looked in and there was the judge, the lawyers, the jury, and the man being tried all singing hymns. Here's what happened. A man being tried for a crime broke down in the middle of the trial, confessed his sin, and told his attorney, I did this crime, told the judge, I did wrong, I'm sorry to God that I've done it, and he told his lawyer, don't defend me any longer because I've sinned. And the judge said, may I recess the court for a few moments? He turned to that man on the stand and led him to Jesus Christ. That man gave his heart to the Lord, was saved in the courtroom, and the jury struck up a hymn. Wow. And that revival spread from Wales to England to Sweden and Denmark to India and China and Norway to Korea, Japan, New Zealand, Africa, 
Australia, Brazil, Chile, and it came to America. And it first started in Pennsylvania, among the Pennsylvania Welsh miners. But then it moved up the East Coast from Pennsylvania to New York. Ladies and gentlemen, there was such a stirring of the Holy Spirit and people being sold out to God, just like Nikki Pentella was willing to pray publicly in front of those hundreds and hundreds of people. People were willing to have their names listed that they had accepted Jesus Christ. And newspapers had a daily feature called Today's Conversions. And they listed the names of the people who came to know the Lord Jesus in the secular press. There became a demand for Christian colleges and seminaries such as God's Bible School and Asbury Seminary and many hundreds of others. A gentleman by the name of B.H. Carroll established our Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, Southwestern, which is one of the largest seminaries in the world, right at the time of this revival sweeping through Texas with brush arbor meetings. You ever heard the term brush arbor? That's where they would just take branches of trees and put it up for shade for the guy preaching so people would come and stand in the fields absolutely everywhere. And great evangelists of those days, people that we will never know their names, did itinerant work. They were circuit-riding evangelists from end to end of this country holding extended revival meetings. One traveling evangelist that continued, and we don't give it credit, was a gentleman by the name of Mordecai Ham who one night outside of Charlotte, North Carolina in 1930s was preaching a message in such an effective way that among the others that came forward was a young, long, and lanky 16-year-old teenager named Billy Graham. And as you know, Dr. Graham was used by God. His own organization estimates that there were 3.2 million salvations under the ministry of Billy Graham. And his ministry should no more have taken off than anything in the world. But one night after he got going, he was going to be in Los Angeles in 1949. And he put up big circus tents to try to get people to come. He was head of a new organization called Youth for Christ that had formed in 1945. And he was one of the presidents. And somehow, William Randolph Hearst, who owned more newspapers in America than any other human being, the largest newspaper, heard about those tents, and he told all of the papers across the country these two words, Push Graham. Billy Graham and William Hearst never met, but God used an unbeliever, a man of the world, to get that young man going where God could use him in a mighty way. And only God knows how many people have come to Jesus Christ because of that. And all I'm asking you today, church, is wouldn't it be wonderful to see a revival like that break out again? Wouldn't it be amazing? God, would you do it again? Would you do it one more time? Well, I want to close this morning by reminding you of the, what the young man said. Revival begins with our own confession of sin. And... I want to share with you, close this session by leading you and leading me in a time of confession. Pastor Matt, I'd like you to come up and I want, uh, I want us to have a time of sharing and, and uh, I want this to be just kind of really personal. You can either close your eyes, you can look at me, you can just listen to the verses. I'm, I'm having Matt play that, a beautiful song, I Surrender All. Such a very important that we consider that as we go through it. And as we look at it, but in way of closing, I want us to reflect on it and, and go through it. And so, if you would, let me just pray. And I want to start sharing some things. And, and uh, there are areas in my life that I struggle with. As I've prepared this this week, I've even thought, Lord, who am I to 
to ask other people how they're doing spiritually. Father, would you be with us? Would you help us as we look on the inside of our own lives, whether we're young and new and fervent, or we're older, some of senior citizens that have allowed our guard to go down, and Satan is having a heyday spiritually. And Lord, it's not going to get right with the world until it gets right with us. The Bible says, confess your faults, pray one for another that you may be healed. It says, the earnest prayer of a righteous man has great power and produces wonderful results. So I'm going to share some scriptures, and then I'm going to ask some deeply personal questions as I go along. Jesus said, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Is there anyone against whom you hold a grudge? Anyone you haven't forgiven? Is there anyone you do not love? Are there misunderstandings that you're unwilling to forget? Is there any person against whom you are harboring bitterness, resentment, or jealousy? Is there anyone you dislike to hear praised or well-spoken of? Do you allow anything to justify a wrong attitude toward another person? Our Lord said, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Is there anywhere in your life that you failed to put God first? Have your decisions been made after your own wisdom and desires instead of seeking and following God's will? Do any of the following interfere in any way with your surrender and service to God, your ambition, pleasures, loved ones, friendships, desires for recognition, money, your own plans? In Mark 16, 15, the Lord said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Have you failed to witness consistently with your mouth for the Lord Jesus Christ wherever you're at in this world? In John 13, 35, the Bible says, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one to another. Are you secretly pleased over the misfortune of another person? Are you secretly annoyed over the accomplishments or advancements of another? Are you guilty of any contention or strife? Do you quarrel, argue, or engage in heated discussions? Are there people whom you deliberately neglect? In Acts 20, 35, the Bible says you are to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Have you robbed God by withholding his due time that you could be giving him, your talents that you could be using for him, or your money that he uses to extend the kingdom? In 1 Corinthians 4, 2, it says, Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Are you such that you cannot be trusted with responsibility in the Lord's work? Are you allowing your emotions to be stirred in the things of the Lord and yet doing nothing about it? 
in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, it says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Are you in any way careless with your body? Do you fail to care for it as the temple of the Holy Spirit? Do you have habits that are defiling to your body? In 1 Corinthians 10, 31, it says, So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do you take the slightest credit for anything good about you instead of giving all the glory to God? Do you talk of what you have done instead of what Christ has done? Are your feelings hurt easily? Have you made a pretense of being something that you're not? In Ephesians 3.20, it says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. Are you self-conscious or Christ-conscious? Do you allow feelings of inferiority to keep you from attempting things that you should in serving God? He's created you. He's gifted you. And you let those emotions keep you from reaching your best self. In Ephesians 4.28, it says, Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do you underpay? Do you do very little in your work? Are you careless in the payment of your debts? Have you sought to evade payments of your debts? Do you waste time? Do you waste time for others? The Bible says in Ephesians 4.31, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Do you complain? Do you find fault? Do you have a critical attitude toward anyone or anything? Are you irritable or cranky? Do you ever carry hidden anger? Do you get outwardly angry? Do you become impatient with others? Are you harsh? Are you unkind? Ephesians 5.16 says, Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Do you listen to unedifying radio, podcast, television, or movies? Do you read unworthy books or magazines? Do you partake in sensual worldly amusements? Do you find it necessary to find satisfaction from any questionable source? Are you doing certain things that show you're just not satisfied in the Lord Jesus Christ? Ephesians 5.20 says, Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you neglected to thank Him in all things? the seemingly difficult or bad as well as the good? Have you virtually, literally called God a liar by doubting his word? Do you worry? Is your temper, spiritual temperature based upon your feelings instead of the facts of God's word? Philippians 1.21 says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Are you taken up with the cares of this life? Is your conversation or heart's joy over things rather than the Lord and his word? Does anything mean more to you than living for and pleasing Christ? Philippians 2.14 says, do all things without murmurings and disputings. 
Do you ever, by word or deed, try to hurt someone? Do you gossip? Do you speak unkindly concerning people when they're not present? Do you carry prejudice against true Christians because they're of some different group than yours or because they're not everything exactly like you? Philippians 4.4 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Have you neglected to seek to be pleasing to Him in any way? Have you complained against Him in any way? Are you dissatisfied with God's provisions for you? Is there any unwillingness in your heart to refuse to obey God fully? Do you have any reservation regarding what you might do regarding anything that might be His will for your life? Have you disobeyed some direct leading from him? Colossians 3.9 says, Lie not one to another, seeing that you've put off the old man with his deeds. Do you engage in empty and unprofitable conversations? Do you lie? Do you ever cheat, exaggerate, or steal? Do you overcharge? 2 Timothy 2 says, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Do you have any personal habits that are not pure? Do you allow impure thoughts about the opposite sex to remain in your mind? Do you read that which is impure or suggest unholy things? Do you indulge in unclean entertainment? Are you guilty of a lustful look? Hebrews 10.25 says, Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see that day approaching. Have you neglected daily spending time with God? Have you found the Bible and prayer uninteresting? Have you neglected the Thanksgiving time at meals or daily devotions with your family? James 1.27 says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Have you allowed yourself to be polluted by the world? Are your manner of deeds pleasing to God? James 4.6 says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Do you feel that you're doing quite well as a person or as a Christian? that you're not so bad, that you're good enough? Do you insist on having your own way? Do you insist on your rights? John 14, 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Have you confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead for your personal salvation? J. Edwin Orr, the historian where I got these facts today, wrote a hymn of the church that's very, very introspective. Listen to the words. Search me, O God, and know my heart today. Try me, O Savior. Know my thoughts, I pray. See if there be some wicked way in me. Cleanse me from every sin and set me free. I praise thee, Lord, for cleansing me from sin. Fulfill thy word and make me pure within. Fill me with fire, for once I burned with shame. Grant my desire to magnify thy name. Lord, take my life and make it wholly thine. 
Fill my poor heart with thy great love divine. Take all my will, my passion, self, and pride. I now surrender, Lord, in me abide. O Holy Ghost, revival comes from thee. Send a revival that start the work in me. Thy word declares thou wilt supply our need. For blessings now, O Lord, I humbly plead. Let's pray. Dear God, we're Christians, but we know that we're sinners saved by grace. And so today, we've tried to confess our sins. As I've read these verses in this list, I'm again convicted of many of them and agree with you that there's sin in my life, sin in our life. I ask you to forgive me, God, and to cleanse me. We pray, Lord, that at this church, as your word becomes real to us through the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of your written word, that each of us might experience real revival It may not go around the world, but Lord, at least let it go around our house. Let it impact our church and our community. As we pray today, Lord, may we not focus on the problems of our nation or the world, but our own sins. And Father, these moments, may there be a time of confession and getting right with you. I know, Lord, there are so many little sins that we just look over, just look over them day after day after day and leave them unconfessed and And as a result, it wrecks havoc and defeat in our lives. Because as we confess it, that's where your promise comes in. We don't need to name it and claim it. But we need to name it and confess it. As you show it to us today, God, whatever that thing may be, we say, Lord, we acknowledge you're speaking to us. And we give that thing to you. Help us, Lord, to be willing to call sin, sin. And then to... Claim the promise of your word that you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We claim that promise today so we can walk out of this building not feeling like that proverbial sack of sin on a popsicle stick, but to walk out of here redeemed, forgiven, energized, and your children to take the good news of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. So church, would you stand with me, please? We're going to sing that song, I Surrender All. And only you can make it personal for you. Maybe the Holy Spirit has helped you internalize things as we've talked, but I want to open the altar. If you have never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I want to encourage you to come and just come say, Lord, today I'm receiving you. The Bible talks about, Jesus said, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father that we share publicly. Maybe there's something, an area of your life, and you know that when you walk out of these doors, the devil's going to be right there knocking on your door again. He's my follow-up man. As hard as I work and as much as we share, as soon as you leave this building, Satan is going to be in your car, in your office, in your mind, doing everything he can. And one of the benefits of you coming and whatever that thing is that you're naming and confessing today, you bring it to this altar, throw it down, symbolically and say God I'm not taking that back I'm I'm giving this thing to you Satan is not going to get the last word I'm not a defeated Christian I'm, I'm a saved child of God and so as we sing the altar is open if you'd like to come feel free to do it if you want to minister right in your seat let the Holy Spirit minister to you do it but let's lift our hearts up and as you sing it say Lord is there anything in my life you want me to deal with today let's sing
And all to Jesus I surrender, may be Savior, holy life. Let me feel the Holy Spirit, truly know that Thou art mine. I surrender. never know till you get to heaven how much I did not want to preach that message here this morning uh, some of it or some of you have heard parts of that before but since last Sunday when I walked out of the pulpit the Lord laid on my heart I told my staff I said I, I can't explain it but I'm going to extend the Jonah story to make it personal for us we need to just internalize this whole concept it's not just reading a book and you put that one down and you go to the other experiencing what God writes about is very important and outside of salvation, revival and growth in a relationship with God, becoming more like, you see what I love about our church? Is it's full of people like me, sinners saved by grace. But he loves us too much to leave us at that point. And he wants us to grow. He doesn't ever want us to get to a point where we think we're better than anyone else. When you get to that point, there's a church somewhere for you, but it ain't here. Because every week I'm in desperate need of Jesus' forgiveness and grace and hope and healing and a second and third chance. But guys, to not just attend church and to experience the Holy Spirit moving and speaking to our hearts is really what coming to church is all about. It's not a general church meeting. 
I want to know what God's doing in my life. I want to know what God's doing in your life. I want you to know that. I want each of us to know that. And so today has just been a time of, whew, hasn't it? 